Gospel of John, and we are finishing just a three-week series going through what is called the prologue, the prologue to John. And I hope that you are learning a few things along the way or being reminded of some wonderful old truths. I know there's been a few new things for me as I have memorized this passage since I was young and then heard that obviously preached and taught many, many times, but then going through it once again, learning from the old, old story, wonderful truth. We've been looking at the incarnation, and the last, uh, the last two weeks we looked at the incarnate word, as we saw in the first three verses, and then last week, incarnate light. And really, uh, this, this portion of our, of our text, 14 through 18, is kind of incarnate everything. It's, it's a summary, it's a, it's a restating of everything, it is new material, and so we're just calling it the incarnate God. That's what incarnation means. It means the divine becoming, uh, becoming human. So we're going to read, I'm going to read the whole passage again as we did last Sunday. I'm going to begin in verse number 1, and then we'll just read through 18 and then focus our attention this morning on the last little bit. Once again, we read and we recognize that as we're reading this, this is not just words about God, but this is word from God to us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the Word of God to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask and beg for Your guiding through Your words. We've heard it read. We've heard it. We've seen it. We want to understand it. We want it to be more than words on a page. We believe that these are the words of life. We, we believe that these are the, the, the true words. These are the, the, the lamp guiding our path words. So we desire to know them. We desire to be fed by them. You, you said that we live not by bread alone, but by your words. So God, fill us this morning. Satisfy us. Maybe there are those among us this morning who are searching for true food. Their souls are hungry. Would you satisfy them yourself, with yourself? Would you satisfy your people who gladly come as we have many times before, to feast, 
the words that you have given to us. So help us as many before us have done to hear these words, to read them, to heed them, to go out with them and live by them. It's for Jesus' sake and in His name that we pray. Amen. John is finishing his prologue, his introduction here, as I said, and he is, he is presenting a case. That's what he's going to do for the entire gospel, and we're not spending the next few weeks going through the rest of it, but you would do well to spend some time, and it wouldn't even take very much time, to go through the gospel of John and to read what John has to say. We've spent a lot of time uh, last year and the year before that and the year before that going through Matthew. And we're not even finished, but John uh, has his own story to tell. And as I've said before, but it bears uh, repeating, that when John is telling this story, he's not just telling us as a story. This is not just a narrative, but rather a case for Christ. A case to prove the identity of the Messiah. In other words, John wants people to understand that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so everything that John says and everything in the way that John says it is meant to do that one thing, to point you and me to Jesus as the Messiah. And so in the, in the first 18 verses that we've been looking at, these are John's opening arguments, if you will. And several times in the last three weeks, I've, I've sat through uh, thinking about this as uh, in a courtroom setting almost, that we, the jury, uh, are, are sitting there listening, and uh, John is, is, is pacing before the court, and he's giving these opening arguments, and he is going to expound upon everything that he's already said. He's talked about the logos, he's talked about the life and the light, he's talking about glory and grace, and he's going to develop those themes even more in, in the coming chapters, but for now, he is just laying out his opening arguments getting us to, the, to the, the frame of mind that we need to be in to hear the truth and understand it and then to believe it. And really, we could take everything that John has said and is going to say and summarize it in the first little phrase of verse number 14. The Word became flesh. This is a big deal. This is uh, far weightier than the few words seem to give it. There is really the basis right there for everything that, that John is going to say. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because the Word became flesh. God, the Son, the Logos, the Word, the life, the light, became flesh. And we're going to take just a few moments and, and try to unpack that a little bit and, and really understand what that phrase and, and then what the following uh, details give us. And then from there we see results that uh, come from the fact that the Word became flesh. At the very beginning of John's Gospel, just 14 verses ago, John told us and wanted us to understand, first of all, that the Logos is divine, that the Logos is God. And he's done a very good job of, of helping us to see that as he explains that the Logos is God, but the Logos is also with God, and the Logos is not God the Father, he's someone different, but yet uh, equally God nonetheless. And he has gone through explaining that the Logos is the one who created all things, and there's nothing in existence, or ever was in existence, that the Logos or the Word uh, didn't bring into existence Himself. And He is the one who has life as the, He is the source of life, and through Him all things ha have life. And later uh, words in the New Testament tell us that by Him all things consist. But now in verse 14, John wants to bring a parallel truth to mind, not to negate what he's already said, but to add to what he has already said. First of all, the Logos, the Word, is God, or the Word is divine, but now he wants us to see at the same time. And somehow, we have to be able to put this together, that he is not just God, but now he is also human. That the Word is a man. That the Logos 
is a person that God, eternal, entered time. I mean, if you really think about that for a moment, that has, that has uh, uh, kept theologians and scholars busy for a long, long time. The eternality of God, yet He enters time. That the Creator enters His own creation. That He is still God. He didn't give up being God. It's not that the Logos, the Word, was God, and then at Christmas, He stopped being God so He could become a man. It's that He kept His divinity and took on the form of a man. He took on the nature. He added this second nature to Himself. And the Word became flesh. It's a very big deal. Now notice what it says in the next phrase there, and, and as kind of as, as the, the, the next thing that would it, would it would make sense for him to say is that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now God has always been with his people. God has always been everywhere, right? God is omnipresent. And, and the scriptures are full up to this point of telling us that God is with us and God is with his people, and, and there is no place where God is not. The psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I ascend to the highest uh, heavens, you're there. There's nowhere I can go, God, where you are not. The Old Testament is full of these reminders. In Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant was that symbolic uh, uh, reminder that God is with His people. And, and, and when God tells Moses how He wants that Ark constructed, He tells him, that is where I will meet with you. And I will meet with you over the, over the ark there. And, and that's where, uh, that when, when you go into battle and when they traveled through the wilderness, that ark would lead them. And, and, and if you go back and read some of those accounts, when they would go, it would, it would not just be with them, but go before them. It would lead them. And when they would uh, encamp, the ark was there to be, uh, to be a reminder that the, that the God that had led them out of Egypt was the God who was leading them through the wilderness. Throughout the Psalms, we find the phrase, the Lord, Yahweh, is with us, or phrases like that. Uh, through the prophet Isaiah, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. And it points us back, when, 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 when John is writing to us, he wants to take us back to different places. Now, earlier in John 1.1, he took us back to Genesis, to the very beginning. Now, in verses 14-18, John is going to take us back to the Exodus. John is going to take us back to the second book of the Bible and, and then kind of through the rest of the Old Testament as he will give us some reminders in what he says. And maybe you or I don't see them quite as obvious, but if you were a, a, a Jew at this time, these certainly would have uh, been very obvious to you. And, and maybe those, uh, those of us who know our, our Old Testament history will see them. And so I hope to show them to you this morning and, and see how what John is saying has a lot of relevance to Old Testament history. Firstly, we see that he is pointing it back to the tabernacle where God was present with His people. Not only was the Ark of the Covenant that place where God would be with His people, but the tabernacle as well was that presence of God. Uh, I'm going to read several places in the book of, from the book of Exodus, but I won't ask you to turn there, but I'm going to read to you from Exodus 29 and verse 42. And this is, uh, this is where God is giving instructions to Moses about the tabernacle. He says, It shall be a regular burnt offering through your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Several times in the book of Exodus, God tells them this, I am with you. And, and, he, and he shows that, proves that with these, these physical things, the, the Ark of the Covenant, now the tabernacle, the tent 
of meeting, as it's called. And, and if you have ever looked at it visually, uh, some, uh, the internet has plenty of pictures of, of what it would have looked like, or even down at uh, Chautauqua, you can kind of see uh, what, what the, 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 the Holy Land there in miniature form there. Uh, but if you've ever seen that, it's, it's really not that impressive on the outside. It's just a tent. It's just it's kind of drab, and yet on the inside it was so beautiful, and it was, and it was specifically to God's uh, instructions, and it was to be the place where God would dwell among His people. And if you've ever seen or read through what the Scriptures say, every time they would, they would stop to camp somewhere in the wilderness, the tabernacle, the tent was erected, and then everything else was surrounding it. And that God was not on the outskirts. God was at the center. And everybody was equidistant from God there. And, 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 and it, was, it was a beautiful, symbolic picture of, of God's presence with them. But now, John tells us, that the Word that has become flesh has dwelt among us, literally means there He tabernacled among us. That the Logos tented with us. And so it's drawing the reader back to the Old Testament about, well, I remember that the, the Old Testament talked about how God's people had the tabernacle and that's where God met with them. But now John says, I want you to understand that God has become present with His people in a far more personal way. Not just through a, an ark, not through a box, not through a building, but through a man, through a person. The Logos tabernacled among us. And this is the new reality of God's presence that John wants us to see. And based on this reality, there are three results. And that's what John will, will explain to us. We see, I'll just give them to you all of them. We'll unpack them in verse number 14. First, as a result, we have seen His glory. Because He was made flesh, we have seen His glory. Secondly, in verse 16, we have received His grace. And finally, in verse number 18, we may know God. Let's look at these three briefly in the time we have. First of all, in verse number 14, it says there that the Word was made, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is one of those, what I've heard called before, stained glass words. They're, they're words that we hear a lot in church, but have you ever stopped to think about what is glory? And I spent some time this week looking at that, and, and, and really glory is, is such a, a, a very uh, wide thing. It's a broad, uh, it's a short word with a very big definition there. And, 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 and as, as we see it explained to us in Scripture, that glory is, 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 is that, it, literally, it, it has to do with heaviness. It's weighty. And so the glory of God is the, the heaviness of God. is not a light thing. It's not a, 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 a flippant thing. But when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about how He's a big deal. We talk about the weight and the majesty or the splendor of God. And so we, we want to understand, first of all, that what we are seeing, the glory of God, what exactly is that? Well, just... For our purposes this morning, we can understand that the glory of God is the result of the presence and the power of God. Now, I have a lot of different places we could look at. And actually, tonight, when we look back, we're going to look at these different uh, aspects of, of, the, of, of Jesus and how the glory of God is, is revealed in these different aspects of Him. But uh, that's for tonight. We won't go into that right now. Uh, but here, again, we are being reminded, uh, recalling the times when God was present with His people, and as a result, they saw and experienced the glory of God. Just a few, so that you can see. If you want, if you're quick, again, I told you Exodus is a place we're going to be, and it's kind of a funny place to be at Christmas time. But Exodus 33, and I'm going to read verse number 20 there. And, and just to give you some, some heads up of what's going on, it's, this is the time when Moses was meeting with God. And it tells us that God was, was meeting and speaking to, to Moses as a man speaks to his friend, face to face. Not that, that, not that Moses saw God, because as we're about to see, Moses requests that he could see God's face. He says, show me your face. I want to see you, God. I want to know you in that, in, that, in that better way. And God says this to him in verse 20. Exodus 33, verse 20. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. It's kind of what John said there in verse number 18. No one has ever seen God. 
But he said here, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So when Moses asks to see God's face, he gets something in return. Instead of seeing his face, he gets to see the glory of God. Now, if you re- keep reading other places, we, every time when Moses would go up on the mountain, he would come down and his, his face would be shining because he had seen the glory of God. Uh, we see another example of the glory of God in Exodus 16. In verse uh, 10 of Exodus 16, it talks about the, the pillar of cloud that would go and lead the people. And there it says that the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Presence of God being there with him. And we even see how the power of God was, was displayed through this cloud. Uh, finally, last place, in Exodus chapter 40, in verse 34, we see the tabernacle once again is a place where the glory of God is displayed. In Exodus 40, it's the last uh, chapter of Exodus, and it says there that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what exactly the glory of the Lord is, is hard to understand and to explain. But we can see from places like these that wherever God is, there is great glory. And in these ways, it's almost as if this, uh, it's a physical thing that, in, that, that prohibited Moses from entering uh, when the glory of God displayed to Israel through the, the thunder of His voice. They said, don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. And so the glory of God is a, was a, a wonderful thing that's displayed all through the Old Testament, but now there is glory that we have seen And it is not in a tabernacle. It is not through a pillar of cloud. It is through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why John says there, we have seen His glory. Well, what kind of glory then? What kind of glory have we seen? Well, he says several different things here about this glory. He says that it's the glory as of the only Son from the Father. He says it's the glory full of grace and truth. So firstly, we see it emphasized or explained to us by its aspects. First of all, as the one and only. This this is the monogamous. This is the only unique Son. Or sometimes it's the begotten Son. The only begotten Son. And it is used to identify that, that He is the only one like Him. There is no one else like Jesus. He is the one and only. And He's connected here as Father and Son. He is the 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 Son from the Father, and He displays glory like nobody else can display glory. But also, He says there that this glory is, is full of grace and truth, and the glory of Christ here is that He is full of grace and truth. And that word full is important. We're going to see that again, and, 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 we, and we build on this, this idea of fullness of glory and fullness of grace and truth. And secondly, in verse number 15, we see that this glory is emphasized in who He is, in His person. First of all, in its aspects, but now in His person because we find here what almost reads like an interruption. Like John is like throwing in this extra detail that, that is like, John, you should have put it in a different place, but he does it here on purpose because in, in my Bible at least, it's got some parentheses around it to, to kind of isolate it as a different thought. But he says there in verse, verse number 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now these two words before are actually two different kinds of words. And John is saying there, and, and we could see it kind of in the, in the ESV and some of the other translations, they bring it out a little bit more, that it talks about he is ranks before me because he was before me. And so what he's saying in the first time he says before, he's like, he is before me as in order of importance, as in order of rank. But then he says in the second before is because he comes in order of time. So Jesus comes before John in rank because he was before John in time. 
Now, if you know your, your, your history here, John the Baptist was born before Jesus was born. You go back and you read Luke 2, and Luke 2 is the story of Jesus' birth. Well, you know, Luke 1 is about John's birth, John the Baptist, the witness who came before Christ to bear witness, to testify of the coming light that was coming into the world. Well, John has been saying, hey, there's one coming after me who is actually before me because he came before me. And then when they see Jesus, he says, this is the guy I was talking about. This is the one that I told you is in rank before me because he is in time before me because, as John has told us, the other John, that he is from the beginning. That though he entered this world after John the Baptist, he has existed long before John the Baptist. In fact, John owes his existence to this one who comes before him. So the glory of Christ is seen in his person, that he ranks before John, whom Jesus himself said in Matthew uh, chapter 11 that there is none greater born of woman than John. That if we're talking about greatness in men, John the Baptist is tops. And yet, Jesus is more glorious than John the Baptist. And in Jesus, then, we see the glory of God. We see the power and the majesty of God. We see the, the grace and the truth. That's why the writer to the Hebrews wrote in, in Hebrews 1.3 that He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. So first of all, that we, we see that, that because the Word became flesh, we have seen glory. And we see it as only can be seen in Jesus Christ. But secondly, we receive grace. We see glory, but we receive grace. And John says in verse number 16, they're from His fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. Remember that word full back in verse 14. That we've seen His glory, and that glory is full of grace and truth. It's, it's, it's got lots of grace and truth. It's full. And now we see that for, from this fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we have received grace. He is full of grace, and from Him we receive grace. And we need to understand, first of all, that all that we can and need to know about God, we see in Jesus Christ. That uh, we find it in Him. In Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul writes that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He says in another place, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That all that is divine dwells in the body of Christ. This is Christ who is the fullness of God. And from the fullness of Jesus, we receive Grace upon grace. Now, I memorized this as many of you have as, as, uh, as, a, as a grace for grace. And, and, and of His fullness have we all received grace for grace. And I never really understood what grace for grace really meant until I dug into it and understood through some other teaching and through my own study there that this, this phrase, grace for grace or grace upon grace, is, is, is kind of like a substitution. We can say grace in place of grace. Grace for grace that has already been given to us. And here once again, we are drawn to the Old Testament because we are reminded as John, not just very subtly, but very specifically tells us about Moses. And it makes us think about Exodus 20 where God gives the law to Israel through the man Moses. That it says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Something that I had never really put together until I was, was kind of forced to do that as I was looking through this here is what John is saying about the law. Now, modern Christians today, the average evangelical Christian does not think very positively when it talks about the law. We think about, oh, the law was so, so difficult and so hard and, and so uh, it, was, it, it required so much of people. And, and it was even mentioned in the Sunday school this morning about how many Christians would rather just get rid of the Old Testament. We'd rather get rid of the law because we'd say, oh, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. But I want you to notice what John has to say here about the law. Now remember, he has just said in verse number 16 that we have received grace upon grace, or grace 
in place of grace already given. You understand? And then he goes right away to talk about that the law was given through Moses. That's grace. John is saying here that the law is grace. The law is goodness and kindness from God. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. David said in the Psalms, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It is sweeter than honey. The other places say, you know, I, I, I need these, these words, this, this law of God. See, the law was given to us graciously to show us what God requires from us. That's a grace. Because God requires things of us and God has graciously told us what He requires from us. It shows us then how we might please our Creator. The law also shows us how sinful and wretched we are. Romans 7 verse 7 says that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he doesn't say there that the law is what made me sin. It's basically that the law is the mirror to show me how sinful I am because he says when the law came, uh, when the, when, before the law I was fine, but then when the law came, sin came alive in me because the law was that righteous requirement and it shows me that I don't like being told what to do. I don't like someone telling me, you shall not, you shall not, you must do this, you will do this. And the law comes there and does exactly that and says, God requires this of you and my sinful flesh says, no, I will be my own God. I will be my own Lord. I will do what I want to do. From our very first parents, they were given the law. Do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They did what they wanted to do. Because they would be God for themselves. And every man and woman, boy and girl throughout history, save Jesus Christ, has had this sinful nature and has done what he or she wants to do. The law then shows us that we do not keep God's law, that we cannot keep God's law, and that we will not keep God's law. We would not if we could. Because our sinful nature requires us to serve ourselves. But the law is also given to guard us until Christ came. Paul writes to the Galatians that the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was not just a set of requirements to crush us, but yet it was, it was given to guard us, to protect us, to, to keep us until Christ came. We were never meant to be justified by the law. We were always meant to be justified by faith. And the law was given to guard us until Christ came for that reason. And through Christ's coming, He now provides new grace. Not the grace of the law, but grace upon the grace of the law in Himself. He provides the grace that we need to please God. Christ is the grace in place of grace already given. This, this phrase, grace and truth, we've seen it twice. Did you know that, and I don't even really, I don't have the time to, to take it any further than this, but grace is only given in this little passage in the whole Gospel of John. Read the rest of the Gospel, and you don't find the word grace mentioned, but John mentions it over and over here in these, just these few verses here, and he, and he connects it with this idea of truth. First of all, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or not first of all, second, that's the last place. The first one, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This phrase finds its equivalent in the Old Testament with the ideas of kindness and faithfulness. Or hesed, if you're familiar with that word, that Hebrew word that is so difficult for us to really place one English word on to define it. And so sometimes it's loving kindness, and sometimes it's steadfast love, and sometimes it's, it's mercy, and sometimes it's loyal love and, and mercy. And all of that put together is hesed somehow. And, and, and we, we, we wrap our brain, uh, rack our brains trying to figure out how we're going to sim, uh, uh, symbolize it in that one word, uh, what hesed means. But we have hesed and we have this faithfulness. We have truth 
That's what it is. It's, it's faithfulness and truth. It's the same, same idea there. And so this, this kindness and this truth are now shown to us in the New Testament as grace and truth. When, 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 uh, when God was, declares his, his name to Abraham, uh, to Moses in Exodus 34, he used this phrase there, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, and emmet, it's the, the faithfulness, uh, steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what Jesus brings, grace and truth. Not only does Jesus bring grace in place of grace already given, namely the grace of the gospel uh, in, place of the, uh, in place of the grace of the law, but here it is that the, his, of His fullness, because of His fullness, grace is always available. He is full of grace and truth. That's why in James, he says he gives more grace. That's why in Romans, Paul says in verse five, uh, chapter 5, where sin increased, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There is always enough grace because the Word became flesh. Grace overflows to sinners like you and my, like me. The grace in Christ will never run dry because we draw from a well that is full of grace and truth. Because the Word became flesh, we receive overflowing grace upon grace. Thirdly and finally, because the Word became flesh, we may know God. Verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God. And again, as I've alluded to Moses many times, Moses never got to see God. And even the times when, when, when in the Old Testament people say, I've seen God. They didn't actually see God. They saw the glory of God. They saw something that was enough to terrify them. But John is very clear here. No one has ever seen God. The only God, the only Son, some, some say there, and there's a, there's a variant here that makes it uh, the split on what it actually says there, but both arrive at the same conclusion, that there's this implied yet here. No one has ever seen God, but through the only Son, the only God, who, the One who is at the Father's side, He has made this unseeable God known. You and I can see God who cannot be seen when we see Him through the only Son. See, through the Old Testament, God appeared in signs and in shadows and in symbols. God Himself said in Exodus there that men shall not see Me and live. Think about the many times that God appeared to a man when he appeared to Abraham, uh, and, 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 uh, when he made the covenant with him, he appeared in a smoking fire pot. When he appeared to Israel, he appeared in a pillar of cloud and a fire. When he appeared to Elijah, it was in the still, small voice. When he appeared to Job, it was in a whirlwind. When he appeared to Moses in the desert, it was in a burning bush. But now, he has appeared to man in the form, in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ we see God. In Christ, we know God. What's interesting there is, 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 again, recalling us back to Moses, that Moses is possibly the man closest to God in the whole Old Testament. As it says there that he spoke face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend. And yet, when, when Moses wanted to see God, God says, you can't see me. But there is one who is in the bosom of the Father. The one who is at the Father's side. Jesus, the Logos. And He has made Him known. Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 14, He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Jesus was very clear with His disciples there. You see God when you see Me. You know God when you know Me. 
That's what I think is so wonderful about the Christmas story. Because whenever God did appear to people, there was fear. There were people, usually the first response when someone saw God was, I am going to die. When Samson's parents were told that that Samson would be born, they said, we're going to die. We've seen God's face. We're going to die. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, he said, I'm going to die. Woe is me. But when the angels came, and at every appearance of an angel regarding the Christmas story, what's the first thing out of their mouths? Fear not. Don't be afraid. And the one who makes God known does not come in an intimidating way. He does not come fearsome and awesome and, and, and causing men to tremble. We, we, we looked at Luke 2 in the Sunday school class about, about how when the angel appeared and it says that the angels were sore, or that the shepherds were so afraid, but not because they saw the Christ, but because they saw the angel. And they came to the manger and they saw God. He was in a, as a baby. There's no baby that's intimidating. No baby is fearful. So awesome that we cower in fear. No. When we see a baby, we, we, we go to it. We want to hold it. We want to coo over it. And we want to we hold it and touch it and look at it and, and, and behold it. And I think that there is in that, even in the form of coming as a baby is the grace of of God given to us that we might come to Him. That we would not be afraid of Him. That we would want to draw near to Him. This Jesus. The one at Christmas time at least that we think of lying in the manger has made God known. If you're familiar with uh, theological terms, the word exegesis. That's what this word is. Jesus has exegeted God. He has declared Him. He has explained Him. He has detailed Him. Whenever we preach, uh, the, 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 the way that we interpret the Bible is the exegesis. We, we, we let the Word uh, uh, tell, it, tell us what it means and then a good Bible teacher or a good Bible scholar will exegete, let the Word tell us what it says rather than the other way around, than me interpreting the Word and making it say what I want it to say. And Jesus comes and says, let me tell you about God. Let me show you who God is. Let me reveal Him to you. Let me detail Him for you. Let me make God plain to you. This is what Jesus the Son has done. And now John has finished his opening remarks. He's laid out quite the case and he's not finished. He's just getting started. And he's going to spend the next 20 or so chapters detailing for us and explaining to us that this Word that was God, that was made flesh, has dwelt among us and the One that many of these original readers knew with with their own uh, experience and had seen with their own eyes was God Himself. God in human flesh. And again... John's intention is for those who know of Jesus, the man, to believe in Jesus as God. For in him alone is eternal life and light. Jesus himself is recorded as saying in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you. He's praying. And he's praying to the Father, saying, the eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Later, this same John writes in his epistle, 1 John 5, he says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is Christmas in the phrase. The Word became flesh. When we remember and celebrate the moment 
when Jesus, the Word, became flesh, entered His creation. We celebrate His birthday. He had always existed, but He was born at a time and a place, and we remember that every Christmas. Not only is this Christmas in a phrase, this is the Christian life in a phrase. Not only the reason that we celebrate Christmas, but the reason that we live as Christians, as Christ followers, because we recognize that Jesus is not just a great teacher. Jesus is not just a a figure from history that we kind of like what He said, so we follow after Him. No, we recognize that He is God. He is our High Priest who goes before the Father on our behalf. And the writer in Hebrews picks up on that and explains that Jesus is this high priest. And because He is a man, because He has that human nature within Him, He is one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because the Word became flesh, He knows what you and I go through. He knows the hurts. He knows the feelings of loss and disappointment. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows the joys and the pains of life. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because we have such a great high priest, we can draw near through him and find grace to help in our time of need because he is full of grace and truth. So my question for you this morning, a question for you to consider throughout the Christmas season and on into the new year, have you seen His glory? Have you received His grace? Do you regularly draw from the well that is full of grace and truth? Do you know God? You can You can say yes to all of these with the same reason. Because of Jesus. Through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the eternal Word who was in the beginning with God, who is the true light that gives light and life to people in darkness. This is the hope of the world. This is light and life. This changes everything. The eternal Word has become flesh. God became a man and lived among us as one of us. He has shown us His glory. He has given us abundant, full grace. He has shown us the Father. That is why we sing joy to the world. Because the Lord come. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why Walt likes to say Christmas and Thanksgiving every day. Because Christ has come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the truths that we know from John and from Your Word that there is grace. There is hope. There is light and life. We are a blessed people. For it seems like everybody will celebrate Christmas. Just about everybody in the world will celebrate in one form or another the Christmas holiday. But for us who know the truth, it's so different. It's not a day to just be with family, although we enjoy that blessing. It's not a day to exchange a gift or two, although we enjoy that grace. It's not a day to take off from work. It's not a day of lights and hope and snow, songs, family togetherness, although we enjoy every bit of that. There's a richer meaning. Sometimes we as people, even though we are Christians, even though we are blood-bought and redeemed, we forget. We need to be reminded what we're doing at Christmas. This Christmas, 
very different than a lot of other Christmases that we've ever known. There is there's extra restrictions on what we can do and what we've always done and many traditions and many things that we've enjoyed doing over these past years of our lives are not available to us and we hope that they will return. Lord, the one thing that makes Christmas what it is has never gone away. The truth that is in our hearts that we know that You, God, became flesh like us. And that because of that truth, we have new life. We have hope. We have seen glory. As later on, as, as, as the, the, the Word tells us, You've left us Your Spirit. Lord, there, there is so much grace given. Lord, we need, we need that grace. We thank You for that grace. Father, if there's someone in the, in the room watching or listening that does not know this grace, they, they know of Jesus, they know of a baby in a manger, Lord, open their eyes that they may see the King of glory. They may see the eternal Word. May they join with us and sing of the joy the whole world enjoys because the Lord has come and opened up their eyes and shone light into their darkened world. Lord, for those of us who have seen it, we walk in it, we bask in its glory. But we need that grace upon grace each day as we face trials, as we move amongst people who still live in darkness as we battle our own sin nature. At times it gets the better of us. Keep us ever mindful of the One who became flesh for us so that we might share in the, the divine glory. Minister please to Your people. Holy Spirit, as You indwell each one of us who believe, would You... Teach us, prepare us, encourage us, correct us, whatever is needed. Would you speak to the hearts of those who have never believed and cause them to see, cause them to believe for your glory, for Jesus' sake. Where we sit, let's take a moment.